A picture at the Locks Visitor Center from 1985 shows a glossy, fat sea lion labeled Herschel. His mouth is agape while he swallows an equally penguin steelhead. At nearly half a ton, he looks like he doesn't care what you think about him. He looks like the notorious B.I.G., ready to take on the West Coast, gobbling through fish like a rapper blows through money. A newspaper account from 1985 says Herschel could kill 13 fish in an hour and 20 minutes. That's about a fish every six minutes. When he was full, Herschel would rip the eggs out of the females, leaving the rest to float away. Skip the nigiri, straight to the row. All right, that was science writer Kate Gammon reading an amazing excerpt of her October 2018 article written for Hakai Magazine. Kate is a graduate of MIT and writes about science, technology, and the environment. And her work has appeared in Wired, Scientific American, Esquire, and many other magazines and websites. I am Jesse Hendricks, and you're listening to Scienced, a SoCal science writer's podcast, where each episode we highlight a story from a local Southern California science writer and talk to them about their article or piece. Today's article from Kate Gammon is called Herschel, the Very Hungry Sea Lion, and is about an infamous sea lion named Herschel who lived in the Seattle area in the 80s and rose to notoriety when he was blamed for the sharp decline in steelhead trout from the Puget Sound ecosystem around the same time. As you heard in her excerpt, Kate's article paints us a picture of this very hungry sea lion and explores the ramifications of holding a single species responsible for the disappearance of another. I just want to say before we get started that I'm especially excited to have you on the show, Kate. Um, Kate is a co-founder of the SoCal Science Writing Group, along with last episode's guest, Linda Marsa, and Casey Renson and Amber Dance, who I'm sure will be uh, both on the show in the near future as well. Um, because without these fantastic women, there would be no SoCal Science Writers, which means there would be no SoCal Science Writers podcast. So thank you, Kate and everyone, for starting this group and allowing me to be a part of it uh, in this way. This has been a lot of fun for me. And Kate, I'm so happy to have you on today. Thank you so much, Jesse. So I always try to start um, with the same question. This is episode two, so we'll see where it goes. Yeah. Um, but how did you come upon writing this particular article? This was a piece I've wanted to write since the day I dreamed I could be a writer. Really? Um, I lived in Seattle and grew up there. And each winter, I would watch the media kind of go crazy, frothy at the mouth about what Herschel was doing, whether it was, you know, a fake orca in the water or blasting him with underwater sound or, you know, feeding him uh, fish that were filled with Ipecac syrup that would make him barf. Um, the, the wildlife managers oh, no. were always coming up with new plans to try to deter Herschel from eating all the salmon. And at the same time, Herschel was always kind of one step ahead of them. And I thought it was this sort of beautiful play of human and animal. And it's a story I've always just been interested. I wanted to get to the bottom of behind the myth of this very famous sea lion. Yes, the myth, the legend. Yep. <laughs> you know, it's funny because I lived in Seattle for six years and I actually went through these very locks several times um, with uh, Noah on a couple of oceanographic cruises. And I don't know how, but I, I missed the whole Herschel legend and story. So I was so excited to read your article and hear about it. But, you know, it's funny because sea lions must live a very long time. If he started in the 80s and then you're talking about seeing him, you know, his saga growing up as well. How long has this been going on in Seattle? Yeah, sea lions can live for decades. And, you know, they kind of pass this hunting and fishing knowledge down from one to another. Um, but this, this issue, even though 
It stopped at the locks around 1994 when three sea lions were FedExed to SeaWorld. Um, FedExed. Yes. Hold on, wait, we have to stop there. They put them on a plane and they sent them via FedEx. When they arrived in SeaWorld, they were greeted by a wave-generating machine. Um, And uh, unfortunately, these three guys soon caught... Um, serious infections and passed away. Oh, no. Um, They did not make it very long to wave at the crowds. But there's an upside to this story because before they died in in Florida, um, they impregnated a lot of the females. So... These three, these three Seattle guys from the from Herschel's gang ended up having this progeny that are still probably like waving flippers wow. at um, at a crowd somewhere in Orlando. What a way to go out! And that's <laughs> there are worse things in the world. Well, and you talked to not that this is equated, but you talked about sea lions intelligence um, in in your intro, and you know it's funny because I definitely picked up on that reading your article because. I, I don't know if people are really familiar with the way that locks work, um, but essentially it, it kind of creates a dam, damming So it's effect. a water elevator. Yes. Yeah, so there's like fish ladders that they've created, right, for the fish to go up. So you're essentially funneling a huge food source through a very small space, and these sea lions sort of learned to take advantage of that opportunity. Absolutely. We created an ecological niche for them. This is literally fish in a barrel. Like there could not be anything, you know, better to trap fish before they're able to go up the fish ladder and put them in a very small area where the sea lions were just able to prey with, you know, endless abundance on this species. So it it kind of comes back to what humans have created with, um, you know, the dams and the locks and and basically paving over a lot of our estuaries and streams in the Pacific Northwest. We made it super easy for this species. And then we turn around and we blame them for the decline of the steelhead. Right. And then we we try to, you know, we we insert ourselves and we're like, oh, well, how do we, you know, we create a problem and then we're, we're going to step in and try to solve it. Um, so this is where I want to talk about fake Willie. Can we, t- can we tell our <laughs> listeners who fake Willie is? Yes. So a radio station in Seattle um, put a call out to their listeners and they, they raised $3,000 to commission a fiberglass fake orca whale created by a Scottish artist. And then flown over to Seattle and dropped in the water column because apparently these things sort of work um, with seals and sea lions in Scotland. And they thought it could work on Herschel and his gang of, of, um, you know, no 'er ne'er-do-wells. However, (laughs) Fake Willie just looks like kind of a squished slug (laughs) of a whale. And it is not convincing at all. It is not scary. Um, they dropped it up and down in the water column. The seals completely ignored it. And Aww. Fake Willie ended up in front of a Mexican restaurant in another part of Seattle, <laughs> where, so, where it was discovered a few years ago and brought back to the locks as an art exhibit. Oh, that's amazing. I was going to say, I, either either Fake Willie wasn't convincing or this just goes to show that um, American sea lions are smarter than Scottish sea lions. It, that no offense to Scotland. <laughs> They are California sea lions, after all. <laughs> and and what about other uh, deterrents from Herschel and other sea lions hanging out there? Because it, it sounds like there were multiple attempts at discouraging Herschel and others from their all-you-can-eat buffet stations by the locks over the years. Yeah, there were so many ways. I mean, I feel like every winter, because this was the winter steelhead run, um, every winter the wildlife managers would try to come up with something new. So, you know, it was rubber-tipped arrows. It was this underwater um, sonograph where they were blasting high-pitched squealing. Well, of course, that hurts the 
the fish and other wildlife too, um, and did not deter the sea lions. Um, the fish that were stuffed with um, nauseous chemicals like ipecac to make the, the sea lions think that the fish tasted bad. Oh, that's horrible. The, the sea lions immediately learned to associate the fish with men in yellow rubber suits and simply would avoid the fish that were being tossed out by the, by the people. <laughs> Gosh, they're so smart. They're so smart. They're really smart. everything that humans came up with, the sea lions were able to sort of navigate around. And I think the biggest one was that they trucked um, six sea lions back to the breeding grounds outside the Channel Islands here in Southern California. And it took the sea lions about 30 days to swim back up the coast. But lo and behold, there they were back at the locks for another meal. So they swam from Southern California up to... Wow. That's... Yeah. And the legend, this is where the, the I had to disentangle the Seattle myth from the reality. The legend was that they, they beat the truck. So a truck was going back <laughs> I-5, back north on I-5, and uh, the sea lions beat it. Well, that didn't actually happen. Uh, people had mixed up two different trucking experiences with the animals. But the animals did make it back in 20-something days, less than a month. That's very true. It is a good story if yeah. it did. But, but that's, that's still super impressive. And for people who might not know, there's, we don't really have a lot of uh, these locks in the country. Um, so we don't, they brought them down here. We don't have uh, a locks in Southern California. Right. This is, um, there's only a handful of them in the country. And um, the one in Ballard, in, in this part of Seattle, is one of the oldest. Um, it was opened more than 100 years ago. Do you think, um, because I know like Panama Canal has a very similar setup. Do you think that there's like some like, you know, Herschel cousins or, you know, like a a contingency of sea lions down there that you know of in in your research at all? Did you find any any problems that they had down in the the Panama Canal locks? Not specifically with the Panama Canal locks, but on um, outside the dams in the rivers in the northwest. So in Oregon and Washington, they're having huge problems with sea lions eating fish right in front of the fish ladder. Um, so the, the dams are the same situation as locks where they've put up an artificial barrier to the water. And so in order to let this, the migrating species, or the species returning to spawn, go around it, they create these ladders and then the sea lions just feed at the bottom of the ladder. And actually just this week, Oregon agreed to um, cull, kill basically sea lions who are preying on um, salmon. Herschel didn't know that the species he was eating was endangered. He just knew he'd found a great meal, and he told his pals. Uh, and I, you can't blame them for that. They're just animals. They're just doing what they do. And, and at its heart, my piece is really about who gets to eat first and how we make decisions um, regarding our oceans, which are a precious resource that is rapidly declining. How do we make decisions going forward about whose right it is to take the fish? Yeah, let's talk about the implications of your article and the whole idea of who gets to feed first in the oceans and um, sort of would you would you kind of call it like the playing God sort of dilemma of, you know, humans, we step in and then we try to fix it. And um, but but really, what is this about and what does this mean um, for the ecosystem and for us? Yeah, we're. Like many things in ecology, when we look at the oceans, we're looking at um, a steep decline in the amount of biodiversity. And by some estimates, by 2040, we will have more demand from our ocean ecosystems in terms of food than actual food that's coming from the ocean. So there's not going to be enough. And it leads to the question of, you know, who, 
who matters who does get to eat first um, because it's it's no longer a buffet, an endless buffet. It's no it's not Red Lobster. It is now you know it's a sparse um, desert and becoming more so. I think what the article brings up is that we need to think really carefully about our role in nature. Are we a part of nature or apart from nature? Hmm. And how much management do we really want to do? Um, and it it becomes a tricky tricky question as the human populations rise rises and as um, the amount of food in our ocean decreases. Yeah, and going back to Herschel, how did that, because there's, there's no doubt that Herschel and his gang and harems and all of that, there's no doubt that uh, they had an effect on the steelhead population. However, once they were sort of removed, um, did that fix the problem? Unfortunately, no. And that leads a lot of people, and I agree with them, to believe that Herschel was not, was unfairly maligned. He wasn't actually responsible, at least single, flipperedly responsible for the decline (laughs) of this species. Um, Even though he was blamed, there were so many other factors at work. Seattle put up a lot of dams, or Washington State put up a lot of dams in the area. There's a, you know, ocean temperatures rising. There's increased um, pressure on our oceans by just a greater population and, and more mouths to feed um, using, you know, uh, fish. So the um, steelhead never recovered. In fact, there has not been a single steelhead trout viewed at the locks in the past 10 years. Wow. So, So again, the implications of that is that we were placing blame on this one source and we weren't necessarily turning that lens back to us and saying, well, what else? You know, what are other solutions or what are other causes? Yeah, humans aren't so good at looking in the mirror <laughs> when it comes <laughs> yeah. to these questions and uh, analyzing what impact we have yeah. on our environments. Herschel was protected. They were protected for a while by the MMPA. The Marine Mammal Protection Act of 1972, um, which was a big deal because previous to that, seals and sea lions had been hunted almost to extinction. Yeah, and and then it, it later in your article it talks about how um, they did eventually legalize lethal action against them. They call it the Herschel Amendment to the Aww. MMPA. Oh, R.I.P. Herschel. Um, I, I'm guessing he's not around anymore. Herschel or, Herschel or disappeared, um, so he was not part of the crew that was FedExed um, on a plane. <laughs> He maybe went down to California to start his own harem, or maybe he found a bullet to the brain, or maybe he simply just went somewhere else. But the as soon as the steelhead run had dried up, Herschel was n- never returned again. Yeah, it, okay, so you, you bring up a really... Oh, great. So when you're talking about like forming a harem and, you know, bullets to the brain and different different things, it's very evocative of some of the imagery that you have in your article and that you read in your excerpt. Um, you have like notorious B.I.G. analogies, skip the nigiri straight to the row. Um, and even like you're very the right right in the beginning, um, which wasn't in your excerpt, but you talk about the locks on a December day looking like a scene from a film noir. And I really I, I love the imagery you're writing evokes. And I want to talk to you a little bit about that, since this podcast is not only about the articles, but about you as a science writer. We talked about before, uh, maybe you hitting some roadblocks with using some of that imagery. Can you talk to, 
Are you allowed to talk about yeah, that sort of yeah. thing? Yeah. Oh, I, I just want to give a shout out to my amazing editors at Hakai, uh, Shanna Baker and Jude Isabella, um, also for taking a chance on this story, um, which was not, you know, a typical like coastal ecosystem story. It was thorny and weird and historical. Um, but I pushed hard to keep the rap analogy in the story because I just felt like Herschel, the myth and Herschel, the reality was so much bigger than just an animal. Um we're talking about a clash of cultures a little bit between the what the animals were after in the ocean and what the humans were after. And Herschel was just such a big personality and a big character. I wanted to um, make a parallel between the rap wars of the 90s and kind of the, the wildlife wars um, between what was kind of viewed as an invasive species and uh, a local ecosystem. And, and so um, I just felt like the violent, the threats of violence and the actual violence enacted on the sea lions um, was a really interesting thing to play with when it comes to to comparing it to rap culture. Yeah, I, I really, I personally really like what you did and, and props to your editors for, for trusting you and taking that story in. I, I love the story. I, I was really excited by it, partially because of my background in biological oceanography and having lived in Seattle and your writing. Oh, some, something you, you mentioned about that kind of analogy between Herschel and you know, the rat boars and everything. I actually, I went to uh, one of the SciComm Spirits and uh, Science and Spirits talks the other day, and they talked about uh, anthropomorphizing animals. And there are risks to that. But at the same time, in science writing, I, I think that there can be a really beneficial use to that in relating to people and relating to a wider audience who might not, you know, be in that like esoteric lane of ecosystem or, you know, yeah. uh, ecology and everything. And and so I, I think that you did that with a lot of finesse and uh, and I enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. It's something that I really wanted to do this year. And um, I always want to tell a story that people who are not interested in the subject can still read and enjoy and then become interested. And I think as science writers, we kind of owe it to our audience. Like we have a devoted audience of people who love science. But I would argue that it's our job also to reach out to people who aren't necessarily inherently interested in science, technology, environment, medicine, whatever, and tell a story that can draw them in and kind of make that tent bigger. I could not agree more, and this is why we are friends. And I am so Kate was one of the first people who I met at the SoCal Science Writing Group, and I was immediately drawn in by this wonderful group of people who were who had a passion for science writing. And you know, I've done a lot of kind of intersections, and I do mostly videos, as you know. But a lot of those are this intersection of sort of pop culture and science because I'm always trying to kind of get to these other audiences. So I, I think you said that really well. And, and I, I 100% agree with you. So on the subject of, of writing, do you have any science writers or writers in general who influenced you in your own writing growing up or this year or anything? Yeah, um... In the past couple of years, I've been uh, following Jackie Bonazinski. And if you don't, if you're not familiar with her, look her up. She's a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist. She does not primarily do science, but she writes the best stories you've ever read. 
and they're all nonfiction. They're true stories. But um, she's a, a great teacher, and so I've taken two of her classes. And that's actually how I started my year the past two years um, is in the desert um, with Jackie. At the first uh, Last year, I did a program called MISA, Madeline Island School of Arts, where Jackie was teaching a course in creative nonfiction. And then this year, a group of us just got together and rented a house, and Jackie joined us. She has taught me so much about writing with color, um, oh. both literal color and, you know, de- evocative details that can bring you deeper into the story. Um, writing dialogue that, that is authentic and real, but again, takes someone a place that they weren't expecting to go. Um, characters, plot, it's basically all the elements of fiction, but you're using them with true stories that are, you know, real and um, science-based. I really, really love that. I'm, I'm inviting myself to the 2020 gathering of this. Yes, come check it out. <laughs> um, and, and then I, I want to just finish off with what advice um, would you have for uh, fellow science writers or science communicators who are just starting out? My biggest advice is don't be intimidated. There are a lot of people who don't know what they're doing, who appear to know what they're doing. I got a great piece of advice from Michael Lemonick, who was the science reporter at Time magazine. He said, I have an English degree. Like, don't be intimidated. Um, and that meant a lot to me because I studied anthropology and environmental science, but I didn't have a hard science background or a journalism background when I went to grad school to do this one specific thing of science writing. I had a lot of passion and ambition, but I didn't have the hard science background. And uh, it took me a few years to learn to just um, go with my passion and to ask good questions. And having good questions is always better than having a ton of knowledge. I really, I really, really love that. And I secretly get to take all of this advice as well. And, and um, this is a really fun part of doing this podcast. Well, thank you so much, Kate. I was really excited by this article. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, you can find a link to Kate's article on our Twitter at Science Podcast. And Kate is also on there at Kate Gammon. I'm Jesse Science. We also have an Instagram at Science Podcast. And if you're looking for more information about SoCal Science Writer events um, and more, you can find all of that at www.socalsciencewriting.com. Um, also, if you want to get in touch with us or have any questions we can answer on a future episode, you can write us at sciencedpodcast at gmail.com. And please don't forget to leave us a review and share with your friends because all that really helps us out. Thank you so much for having me. I've had a great time and uh, looking forward to, to hearing more from the podcast this oh, year. Thank you, Kate. Again, like this, none of this would be possible without all of you guys. And so I really appreciate that. So thank you again. And um, yeah, we'll catch you on the next episode of Scienced, a SoCal Science Writers podcast. 